I'm a huge fan of MixApp, ACP's medical knowledge self-assessment program. It provides the latest, most comprehensive educational content needed by internists today. Visit acponline.org forward slash MKSAP18 to learn more about MixApp18. The Curbsiders Podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of those and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like moral hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we aren't responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Welcome back to The Curbsiders. I'm Matt Watto, here without Stuart Brigham tonight, but the great Paul Williams is with me. And uh, this is Hotcakes, so he's going to tell you what we normally do on the show, then what we're doing tonight, and a little bit about our guests. Great. Thanks for that, Matt. Uh, As a reminder, ordinarily we are, I mean, we're always the internal medicine podcast, (laughs) but usually we use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge for these Hotcakes episodes, the experts are kind of us. They're really, there's only one expert here, and that's Rahul. And then he just kind of drags us along on his coattails, for which we are eternally grateful. Uh, so we are joined by Rahul Ganatra. Uh, no, no pressure. Uh, Clarity Wizard. And we are also lucky to be joined by Dr. Michael Sternberg, uh, who is a current chief president of ECU and a future cardiology fellow at Virginia Tech Carilion Clinic in Roanoke, Virginia. Michael, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. So, Michael, you're going to present an article later, but first... We got to start off with a pick of the week from Paul, and then I think Rahul has a fun animal fact, which I will uh, tease. I know everyone's going to be holding their breath until we get to that. So yeah, I, I have a pick of the week. I am choosing uh, the EP that is yet to be released. I'm going to pull a Stuart and a pick of the week for something where I'm not entirely sure what its entirety looks like. But it's based on a single release from the EP, so that the EP and the single are entitled Imposter by the artist Miss Grit, who is the, um, the stage name of the artist Margaret Sohn. It is, it's been years since I've been this excited about a new song. Like it is, it is, she sort of has this nineties kind of alt sensibility and this sort of ethereal sort of pop stuff, but also a lot of uh, fuzzy guitars. And she plays a lot with dynamics and sort of sonic textures and stuff. Like she's like, she's like, she was designed in a lab to make music that is right up my alley. Like there's (laughs) the song imposter at like two minutes and 30 seconds in. Like, I think I feel my soul leave my body every time I listen to it. It is just one of the best things I've heard. So just on the basis of that single alone, I'm going to recommend the Miss Grit EP, Imposter, um, and then the single off of it, also named Imposter. So check that out if you're, in the, if, if you're in need of new music. Paul, I feel like what I listen to is elevator music compared to you. I mean, that's just <laughs> the most vivid description of a song I've heard in a long time. I think you I, may be in the wrong career, Paul. I, I'm not saying. <laughs> <laughs> my, pati- my patients tell me that every day. <laughs> <laughs> Michael, I feel sorry for you having to follow Paul with a pick of the week, but did you have a pick of the week? We do not expect you to be half as eloquent as Paul as no one ever is. Yeah, that, that's a tough act to follow. I do have a pick of the week, though. It is a TV show, Netflix series called Peaky Blinders, back from around 2015. It's about a, a British crime family called the Shelby family uh, right after the end of World War I. It, it, it's not for the faint of heart. It is a, it's an intense show. But the main character, uh, who's played by Paul Anderson, is just captivating. And my wife and I cannot stop watching the show. It's fantastic. Well, to lighten things up after that slightly grim recommendation, <laughs> Rahul, can you tell us what's what's happening with dogs these days? 
Okay, so I try to keep my finger on the pulse of the COVID-19 literature and on the sort of general interest dog literature. So I was <laughs> very pleased to have those two Venn diagram circles overlap this week. So uh, the Miami Heat, people may have heard about this in the news, um, are trying to figure out how to bring back fans to American Airlines Arena. And they are taking advantage of a strategy that we have actually talked about uh, on a prior episode of this show. And that is using COVID sniffing dogs to screen fans for COVID-19 who want to come into the arena. So there's like, you know, news coverage about this. Um, and I don't know anything about the details. But what I see in the news is that they're basically going to have people line up and a dog that is trained to sniff out COVID-19 is going to walk past them. And if the dog walks past you, that is your all clear. If the dog sits down, that means they've detected the scent <laughs> and you need to, to isolate and get tested. So uh, I'm really excited to I know we talked about this kind of as yeah. a cool, fun thing. And I'm excited to see that that somebody's going to try this. I hope they're studying it to see if this like actually works. Or I think just... we covered something similar like a, like maybe six months ago, and and there was I, I want to say it was at like somewhere in Philadelphia. Even they were doing this. Might have been at Penn. They were they were trying to teach dogs to sniff out COVID. It just like does COVID smell like anything? That's 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 my question, but. Because there was another article that that one linked to that said that it was in, I think, the airport in somewhere in Europe. They were like having people wipe their skin with like a wipe and then they put it in a jar and then they let the dog sniff it. And if the dog like scratches the jar or sits like there was a couple of different signals the dog could give. And if that happens, then that person not getting on, not getting on a flight. <laughs> and then I love who, who's sniffing the dog? Who's checking if the dog has COVID? <laughs> Can't they have COVID too? Yeah. Yeah. This This seems... I mean, it's great. It, it, maybe, maybe it, it if, if it works, it's it's great. It's better than someone swabbing your nose. Although I think if you, I think there was some mention of like maybe confirming with a PCR test or something no, like that. That seems like a good idea. Yeah. 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 <laughs> what could possibly go wrong? What could possibly go wrong? Paul, <laughs> can you start us off? We so we have three articles tonight. Uh, to tease it, we are going to be talking about low dose colchicine for gout, which you're used to, and for chronic coronary artery disease which maybe you're not used to if you're if you're like me that wasn't quite on your radar too much so but first we're going to talk about chronic osteoarthritis of the knees paul can you tell us about your article and then we'll 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 dig into it yeah i'm excited about this one it's a little bit old at this point um relatively speaking so this is uh physical therapy versus glu glucocorticoid injection for osteoarthritis of the knee by uh, Daly Allen et al., uh, and apologies if I mispronounced that, in New England Journal of Medicine. And this is from April 9th, uh, 2020. And if you'll recall, around that time, other things were happening medically that unfortunately sort of overwhelmed um, the literature. So this, this, uh, all this excitement about knee pain kind of got swamped under like hydroxychloroquine <laughs> and um, dexamethasone. And uh, there, there's just other news that unfortunately buried this. But I feel like in primary care, we deal with knee pain all the time. And the question that they wanted to answer is how do glucocorticoid injections and physical therapy compare in terms of efficacy for managing patients who have uh, osteoarthritis of the knee? Um, so I think before I even get into the article, I did want to ask you all just sort of what your, how do you choose who gets what, I guess? So when a patient walks into your clinic or limps into your clinic and says that their knee is killing them and they have all the, all the stigmata of OA, how do you choose which patient will get referred for an intraarticular injection or physical therapy or both? Do you have any kind of algorithm? Is it based on Gestalt? Like how how are you picking? So Paul, this this happens most days when I'm in clinic. Someone has knee pain, and uh, once I find out what they've tried, 
if it's the person that's already tried NSAIDs and muscle rubs and they've uh, they've already been to physical therapy and they've they've done topical NSAIDs and ice and heat and all this stuff and and they're basically all the normal things that I would suggest uh, then I uh, then I will often send them to orthopedics and usually orthopedics is doing their own x-rays and oftentimes starting to work them up. Like, does this person need a surgery? And oftentimes before someone gets a surgery, they'll end up getting an injection. But I do run into a fair amount of patients that just do not even want to try physical therapy. They're like, I tried it once. It doesn't work. Just give me the drugs. Like that's basically what they're saying, or give me the injections. I agree, Matt. I think people have really, really strong feelings up front about physical therapy, which sometimes is, is quite surprising. It is. Oh, you're setting me up beautifully. This is exactly the point that I want to make. I think (laughs) that's exactly right. And a lot of the time, how I choose, at least at the initial um, branch point, is who's willing to undergo physical therapy versus who would actually sort of like the quicker relief. And it's, I've often sort of struggled how to couch that conversation. And basically, I pitch an unwillingness. And one of the reasons I was interested in this article is to see if I had any evidence I can then add into my my discussion, my informed decision making with the patient. So that was the thing that got me excited about this. So just for for context, the ACR guidelines actually give intraarticular steroids a strong recommendation um, based on short-term efficacy, and they also recommend, I think, against manual therapy. So the, the most recent guidelines from 2019 that we have um, lean a little bit more towards intraarticular steroids, and they actually seem to happen far more often than PT for knee pain. And even the referrals for physical therapy for, for knee OA, at least I should say, have been declining over the past couple of years. It's, it's a really, it's an interesting timing, it's an interesting study. So as I mentioned, this is the big question is, is how does physical therapy compare to steroid injections for OA of the knee? And this is a, the design is this is a pragmatic uh, randomized control trial. So that's, it's, <laughs> I don't know that you can do sham physical therapy, which is something I thought about. Um, yeah, but, I, I know you can do sham acupuncture, like patients right. blindfolded and you pretend to press on the spots, but I, I don't know. Yeah. So I, I don't know. It'd be fun to, to mess around and just pretend like you're doing PT and then see if that actually makes a difference. But I guess that's a study <laughs> for a different day. But basically, this was this was patients were recruited from a military health system. So patients of their families, they had to be age 38 or older, and they presented to one of two large military hospitals, and they had to have a diagnosis of osteoarthritis by two different criteria, by clinical criteria, and then also by radiographic criteria as defined by something called the Kellgren-Lawrence grading system, which I have no familiarity with, but it goes from no evidence of OA to large osteophytes and significant joint space narrowing and that kind of stuff. And I think even that inclusion criteria is interesting, and we can talk about that. But in any case, before I get bogged down, these patients were were recruited from primary care offices and then also from physical therapy clinics. And so the way they got these patients is if their primary care doctor referred them to orthopedic surgery or PT, or they presented to a PT clinic, then that's how they actually got um, recruited into the trial, which I think is is interesting. So the decision had already been made, the die had been cast, and then these patients were recruited to be randomized into either PT or, or steroid injections. Um, so I, I, I'll be curious to know what Rahul thinks in terms of if there's a possible introduction of bias there at that point. Yeah. I mean, this is one of the only sources of bias towards an effect that I could really find in this study is the fact that a large proportion of the study population came from a setting where you would expect patients pursuing physical therapy are going to be you know, intrinsically motivated and interested and sort yeah. of believe that that's going to uh, um, address their problem. 
So that, I mean, patients had to be willing to undergo um, corticosteroid injection um, if they were randomized to that group in this study. Um, so they were at least willing to do that. But it does make you wonder if, you know, the fact that a third of the patients were recruited from physical therapy visits uh, could have introduced a source of bias towards an effective physical therapy. Yeah, they, right. Exactly. Yeah, they were already sold on it, apparently, to the extent that they actually showed up at the door. <laughs> so, so it's, yeah, I wonder if there wasn't some bias there, which I, 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 I think is okay. We'll talk about that. But in any case, the patients were randomized to the, the steroid injections. They were seen at four months and nine months, and they could receive up to three injections if that's the path that they were randomized to. Or for physical therapy, they got manual therapy, reinforcing exercises, stretches, that kind of stuff, and they underwent eight treatments over the initial month or so, and then they could get additional sessions at four months and nine months. And so they actually had three potential courses of physical therapy, and both groups had education about sort of self-management of their osteoarthritis too, which is also kind of an interesting feature of the study. I think probably worth noting um, quickly is that the mean age in both arms, the patients are about 56 years old. Uh, the physical therapy group actually, after the randomization, interestingly had worse symptoms at baseline and probably more significant radiographic evidence of disease. Um, but their baseline Womax score, so the score they actually used to judge effect, was the same for both of those groups. And the Womax so, score, that includes pain, stiffness, and physical function? Perfect. Yes. Thank you for that. And that that's exactly right. And that's the main outcome that they were looking at at one year. That was the, the primary end. Point. Yeah. And 108 is like a middle tier score because I think it goes zero to 240. Yep. Yep. And then if you're looking at changes, then a, a, a difference of 12 to 16 is considered significant if I, or a change of 12 to 16% Percent. is considered significant. Yeah. They also looked at other stuff too. They looked at, um, some functional tasks. They did a time to get up and go test. They did something called an alternate step test, which I hadn't heard before. Then also this global rating of change just um, to determine how much the patients felt that they had changed from baseline to the end of the study. And those were all secondary analyses as well as cost analysis, which in the wash turned out to be the same. Any questions or thoughts so far? I feel like this part was actually relatively straightforward, even though I said a lot of words there. <laughs> yeah. So adult patients, they had pretty much similar baseline knee pain scores. Seems like they were you know, medium high scores, 108 out of a score of 240. And what was the outcome? Like how long did they follow the patients, Paul? And what was the primary outcome? Yep. So the primary outcome that they were excited about was at one year, um, the Womax scores were 55.8. And recall, this is from a baseline of around 106 for the intra-articular injections and 37 in the physical therapy group. And so there was a significant difference between those stores of about 19 points. So that's a p-value for what it's worth of 0 0.008. And then the secondary outcome, the patients had better uh, functional testing scores, though they, they didn't comment too much about that. Overall, there was actually, the persistence in effect is interesting in that it, it persisted, the fact that it was better at one year for both physical therapy and intraarticular steroid injections is actually um, contradicts some prior studies where the effects were thought to be more in the short term. So the fact that we were seeing both last the full year was interesting, and they had some thoughts as to why that might be. But the big Big ticket item is that the physical therapy did better and significantly better than intraarticular steroid injections, though both showed improvement at one year when they followed up with these patients. Yeah, this was this was surprising. Michael, what were you going to say? Yeah, I think the length of follow-up here is one of the really big benefits of this study compared to some of the other short-term studies that they mentioned, and also the fact that they they you know offered additional steroid injections, additional PT at preset points throughout that year. 
Yeah, there was a lot of like touches with the healthcare system. I think the patient education, they mentioned the authors were speculating that because the they had so much contact with the healthcare system and patient education was given that these patients may have felt more like self-efficacy from that and maybe that's why their their pain scores were better in both groups than you you might have expected from previous. That's I, a, I like oh go ahead. Roll. I was going to say that's a really important observation Matt because the the sort of intensity of the exposure to the intervention in both groups was relatively high. They yep. completed a mean of between 11 and 12 physical therapy visits over the course of the year, which is is quite a lot. And then the the patients who were randomized to the corticosteroid injection, they completed a mean of uh, between two and three injections per patient. So kind of a high uh, intensity exposure. I think the other thing, and again, this is not uh, not impugning, uh, I'm sure everyone's intentions are pure as the driven snow, but the actual, the physical therapists who provided the treatment, if I'm understanding the trial correctly, were also investigators in the trial. So I feel like that they were, they probably had a, a fair amount of investment in the success of physical therapy and was sort of like, I think that they have physical therapy in their hearts and souls already. Though, again, I'm sure, I, again, I'm not sure that has any significant impact on the trial. I just thought that was an interesting point. So this was, we, we went through the question, the comparison, we're just talking about the results. And this was a positive trial, right, Rahul, because the physical therapy showed that there was benefit over the, the steroid injection. So we need to look for potential sources of bias, which we, we started to talk a little bit about. Rahul, for you, what was the, um, was it just this recruitment issue? Is that the main source of bias? Was there any other big, big glaring things? Yeah, I like this framing. Uh, I think that, you know, looking for reasons why a study where a difference is shown could be explained by bias or chance is really important because that is kind of the most accessible way that, you know, practitioners like you and I can sort of try to minimize the likelihood of being fooled by something that's not real. Mm-hmm. So for this study um, that showed a, a benefit of physical therapy as manifested by a larger decrease in the Womax score at one year, um, we already talked about one source of bias towards an effect, and that's, you know, recruiting patients from physical therapy clinics. I would welcome, you know, observations if anybody has any ideas for more. I, I, I could identify two sources of bias towards a null finding in this study that actually kind of increased my confidence in the reality of this finding. And I'll tell you what they are. The first one is that uh, the degree of crossover between the two groups, I think, would tend to bias towards uh, there being no difference between the two. And I think the amount of crossover is also informative. Uh, it was twice as many people in the injection group crossed over to physical therapy. It was like 18% and 9%. And to me, that suggests that that was because their symptom control was was worse. So they were looking for uh, other effective treatments. And that's something I think would tend to bias towards the null. And then the other source of bias towards the null is something that Paul mentioned in the very beginning, which was just due to chance you know, we got unlucky with the randomization and patients in the physical therapy group had uh, more longstanding disease by about a year. Um, They had more frequently reported symptoms of swelling and locking and the knee giving way. And they had slightly worse uh, radiographic findings. So if anything, I would expect those patients to do worse, regardless of what treatment they get. And because there happened to be more patients with severe disease in the PT group, I would expect that to bias away from a benefit of PT. One thing to mention about the duration of symptoms, just for clinical practice here, uh, these these patients had, in the steroid group, they had 85 months of symptoms, and in the uh, in the physical therapy group, 100 months of symptoms. So these people these people had symptoms for quite a long time, uh, going on a decade, 
uh, before they were in this group. And so to, to refer someone that's had a decade of knee pain to physical therapy um, is not something like usually maybe you do that early on. So I think that's something that uh, this definitely for me is going to change practice as far as referring more patients to physical therapy, having this to point to. Um, and not everyone wants steroid injections. They're, they're not particularly hard for patients to get though. If they want them, you refer them to a clinic that does them, they'll get their x-rays, they'll get their injections. Um, but I think this is something we shouldn't leave unturned. So Paul, is this practice changing for you and how many hotcakes would you give this? Yeah. Yeah. We were talking a little bit before, like, I, I think if I'm understanding the study, right, that patient selection is actually bizarre. Um, it's a, it's sort of very unique subset because it's patients, as you say, who have longstanding pain, have x-rays on file, but have not had recent physical therapy or injections in the past year. Those are exclusion criteria. But despite all that, like, I think this is, it's a positive study. I thought it was really actually well done. And I'm, I'm happy to have something in my armamentarium to sort of add to the argument that yes, physical therapy is going to be helpful for you. And we should, we should give this an effort. So I I think I'm going to lean more heavily into it. So I think it is practice changing. And based on that, I will, I will give it a a four and a half stack. I will play along and say, this is... (laughs) Okay. Well, why don't we do four hotcakes and maybe a pat of butter and some syrup? That's that's four out of five hotcakes. So that is high praise coming from Dr. Paul Nelson Williams. So with that, Michael, can you tell us about your article? We're going to now move into talking about colchicine. Two articles, Michael. Your yours is first. So let's let's hear about it. All right. So my article is called "Colchicine in Patients with Chronic Coronary Disease." This is also called the LoDoCo two trial. And it was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in uh, November of 2020. And the question they asked was, does low-dose colchicine prevent major adverse cardiovascular events in patients with chronic coronary disease? And they followed these patients for 28 months. So this was a randomized controlled double-blind trial of around 5,500 patients. And they spanned an age from 35 to 82. They had stable coronary disease. And this took place in Australia and the Netherlands. So these patients were randomized to either colchicine 0.5 milligrams per day versus placebo. And this took place after a one-month run-in period to make sure that the patients could tolerate colchicine without too many side effects. So if they tolerated colchicine after a month, then they were divided into placebo or or 0.5 milligrams of colchicine per day. the trial excluded patients with moderate to severe chronic kidney disease, severe congestive heart failure, or valvular heart disease, or a known intolerance to colchicine. So overall, this was a, a very positive trial. The, the patients taking um, colchicine had a decrease in the primary outcome, which was a composite outcome of cardiovascular death, myocardial infarction, stroke, or, and ischemia-driven revascularization. And so 6.8% of the patients in the colchicine arm experienced the primary outcome, whereas 9.6% in the placebo group experienced the primary outcome. And this came out to a hazard ratio of 0.69 and a relative risk reduction of 31%. So a really robust effect here. I would say that, uh, first of all, I would just like to say, low doco, come on, Paul, Great. I, yeah, I was just going to say, I think, is it really? Because I was just going to say, I think this <laughs> trial more than anything tells us that the cardiologists have finally exhausted uh, Greek and Roman god names. No, Lodoco. <laughs> I'm just going to now in clinic, I'm going to be like, so what do you, you want to do for this patient? Lodoco? Lodoco. 
Four Locos? No. Yeah. Four- <laughs> <laughs> Rahul, is 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 ischemia-driven revascularization a typical part of the composite of major adverse cardiac events? I I know they put revascularization in there. I just that ischemia-driven revascularization. Does that mean they they revascularized them and there was actual evidence of ischemia as opposed to just they just got For a bunsies. stent just just because they <laughs> felt like putting a stent in? So uh, really important question and important observation. I I interpreted that to mean that that was patients who basically had unstable angina and then needed to get revascularized in that setting. So it wasn't wasn't an MI. Correct. And they they did, you know, another important thing to, we're kind of laughing about, you know, the the specific definition of this, but it's an important point that you bring up, which is, you know, verifying that the original primary outcome in any positive study, you know, verifying that the original primary outcome is the same as the current. And if there's any changes that you kind of understand why. Uh, it's really important because you want to make sure that, you know, we haven't kind of shopped around for a primary outcome, a combination of things that, you know, gives us uh, the effect that we're hoping for. And so the outcome was changed. Um, they say in the manuscript a few times, um, in this study, but in my opinion, they did, um, a good job of explaining why they did this in the protocol. And they were basically trying to maintain consistency with other, um, publications in this area. So I important see. point. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I, I saw that and I was like, that seems like a red flag changing, changing <laughs> several, primary endpoints multiple times. Several times. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. Michael, from what I remember from this, reading this article, this is not one of those ones where it's like, oh yeah, they gave you a composite outcome and like there's death and MI and stroke, all these scary things. And then it's like, it's main, the, the difference is all driven by one other primary, one of the composites right. that we don't care about. But in this one, I think when they looked at all the composites, like everything seemed like it was favored by Lodoco. Is that- Yeah, they they really saw a benefit <laughs> from each component of the primary outcome. Absolutely. Yeah. Which in, in sometimes they try to hide it, you know, they try to be like, oh, we had a great effect on our primary outcome. And then you, f- and then you dig into it and you're like, oh, it's just this one thing that I don't even care about. It was just all yeah. heart failure all day. Yeah. <laughs> now, one one uh, interesting thing about this article, maybe Rahul can comment on is that the primary and the secondary outcomes are very similar. So the primary outcome is this composite uh, outcome of MACE that we talked about. And then this, the main secondary outcome is uh, composite of cardiovascular death spontaneous MI and ischemic stroke. Uh, why, why would the authors have such similar primary and secondary outcomes? Yeah. Another important question. I'm not sure I have a, a good straightforward answer to this. Um, you know, it, to try to tease out as Matt was saying, what is the driver of, you know, a difference in a composite endpoint that we're seeing? That's an important function of, you know, testing each of those individually. Um, and I sometimes do see investigators do subsets of the primary outcome. And in this study, the only thing, the only point I'll make about this is the authors did something that I think is quite responsible with regard to testing uh, multiple secondary outcomes. And that is that they used what is called a hierarchical testing procedure, which is a way to try to guard against a false positive finding. And how this works is you say, okay, here's my secondary outcomes ranked in order of importance. I care the most about you know, fatal events, uh, debilitating events, and I care the least about maybe changes in like a surrogate biomarker. And you will only proceed with testing those outcomes if the preceding one is positive. So if the primary outcome shows a difference, then we'll proceed and test the most important secondary outcome. And the authors actually, yeah, and it's kind of a cool thing. And the authors actually stopped when they 
achieved uh, a secondary endpoint uh, that showed no significant difference. So it's it's one method to try to guard against um, something we've talked about before in the show, which is uh, when you test multiple um, hypotheses just due to chance, you're you're likely to find one that's and you positive. yeah you eventually find like a, a what was that Virgo if you're a Virgo aspirin works better remember that Paul uh, Tony right. <laughs> Tony Isis talked two. about that yeah there you go the yeah. aspirin one it was yeah. like your your uh, your sign your sign determines whether or not you're going to respond to aspirin after after a heart attack something like that. Well, this, you know, Rahul, what I, what was unusual here, and I remember they did this in uh, one of the trials with the, I think it was one of the paradigm heart failure trials. They did a run-in phase to make sure patients could tolerate the medicine. Is that legit? That seems like you're highly selecting for a population that might benefit from from this medication. I mean, was there secondary gain in this one? Uh, Was this, I forgot to check, was this industry funded, Michael? Uh. I actually don't know. Okay. Oh, we'll, so, no, we'll, uh, the, yeah, let's, let, let's, uh, let's look it up and then that way I can ask you and you can answer it. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I asked the same question. Um, so great minds think alike. Um, this was actually funded by the Australian government, uh, the equivalent of their NIH. So important question to ask about sources of bias. Um, your question about a run-in period, you basically described uh, what I would say about this, which is you know making sure we understand the effect that that has on the study population and what that means for the generalizability of the results. So run-in periods can be used for good or for evil, and it's not wrong to want to enrich your trial for a population of patients who are going to tolerate the drug. But it's important for us as readers to recognize what that is going to mean about the estimation of adverse events. So if you, you know, screen out everybody who has um, side effects from a medication, that means that the patients who are left in the trial are patients who are less likely to have adverse events. You guys buy that? Yeah, yeah. And that means that we are going to underestimate the prevalence of adverse reactions to a study drug that compared to what we would see in the real world. So it's not a bad thing because it increases follow-up and it, um, you know, enriches the study population for people who are likely to, to benefit. Um, but it's important for us to recognize that what that means is that in the real world, translating these results, we're likely to see uh, um, that this is an underestimation of the adverse effects. Michael, we're gonna we're gonna have to do a, a follow up episode on stable coronary disease. Uh, Paul and I were talking about this earlier, but will this be changing your practice, or have you seen this changing practice as someone who's a future cardiology fellow? Uh, maybe you're in the know more than we are. I have definitely not seen this used in practice yet. And I think one of the main reasons that people are hesitant to implement this is the, in this study, they found that there was actually an increased incidence of non-cardiovascular death in the colchicine group compared to placebo. And this uh, came out to a hazard ratio of 1.51. And the authors really did not have a good explanation for why this was. They noted that there were similar rates of cancer in the two groups and similar rates of hospitalization for infection uh, and GI reasons. So it's kind of unknown. Yeah, this this is all a bit puzzling because it's like this seemed fairly favorable, like a number needed to treat in the 30s. These patients were already on like high dose statin, other medications that you know, we, we know are protective for sec, you know, secondary prevention. And this seems to be an additive therapy. Um uh, I guess 10 years ago or 20, 20 years ago, 15 years ago, this would have been a very cheap therapy to add on to, to guideline. <laughs> yeah. Now, 
now it's not not so cheap at least for the in the United States um I don't know Paul what do you think no, I agree. I'm kind of shocked that I'm not seeing people showing up in my office after having acute events that have been started on Colchicine. Yeah. After, like, I'm just, I'm kind of surprised this has not been sort of more broadly practice changing, but I guess we have some, there's probably a little bit of delay in the uptake by professional societies as they sort of evaluate the evidence. And then also there's the the weird thing that it might kill more people from non-heart <laughs> causes, yeah. which would also should give you pause too, I suppose. So it's, um, but yeah, no, I'm surprised I haven't heard more about it, to be honest. And there's actually, there's another colchicine trial published recently where they gave colchicine to patients after having an acute coronary syndrome. It also showed a very, you know, positive, robust effect. Um, and I'm not sure if it was that trial or another one, but another colchicine trial showed an increased risk of non-cardiovascular death as well. Oh, so maybe um, it's not just a chance. Because I, I was going to say, I mean, there's always the possibility anything that you find is due, could be due to chance. But I guess uh, the, if it keeps popping up in more and more trials, you start to question that. Yeah, I think that'll really need to be flushed out um, prior to this being incorporated into guidelines. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, Michael, how many hotcakes do you think you'd give this? I mean, usually a five is the most hotcakes you can give. That's a full stack. And that means it's like practice changing. You're going to start doing this tomorrow. Zero is like... Yeah, you're you think it's the worst article you've ever read. It's you can't even believe it was published. Hopefully we never present any articles like that on this show, but I'm going to give this uh 3.5 hotcakes. I think the evidence is really strong. I think the study was well done. Um uh, but there's just a few unanswered questions still about why the in, there's an increased risk of death in the patients with colchicine. Okay. All right. So the fu- you're making me think I overcommitted to my hotcakes now. Like I'm usually the stingy one. You're going three and a half, <laughs> and I'm second guessing myself. New guy is uh, showing you up there, Paul. <laughs> I don't like this. <laughs> All right. So my my study, the final study, this is called the contact trial. Which Paul, this is this is a rheumatology study. The contact trial. If it was the cardiology, it would have been like high impact trial, something like it would have been a little bit more exciting. Yeah, like the Silicaribdis Sisyphus <laughs> trial. <laughs> All right. So this was by Roddy et al. It was also from 2020. And, and I should mention this this episode is kind of a, you know, some of our favorite articles, potentially practice-changing articles from 2020, since it's it's relatively early on in 2021 right now. Um, and we, did, we didn't feel like covering COVID. Paul, it's just so much COVID. <laughs> I don't have it in there. Uh, I felt yeah. like covering COVID. <laughs> I know. I'm sorry, Rahul. Maybe next time. We can do the culture scene COVID episode next time. <clears throat> just really just yeah, I'm sure. Uh, Someone's do- Someone has to be doing it, right? Yeah. Oh, I thought it was a thing. I think yeah, it I is a thing, thing, actually. Okay, so this this was a uh, open-label, randomized, pragmatic trial. The question was, is low-dose culture scene, or low-doco, as Paul loves to call it, uh, mm-hmm. is it effective and tolerable as NSAIDs for acute gout flares. So we know NSAIDs work for acute gout flares. Uh, and I guess colchicine had just not been studied head to head with it, surprisingly. Um, some of the background in the past, there were trials, like there was a 2010 study where they were giving patients like 4.8 milligrams of colchicine a day versus 1.8 milligrams of colchicine a day. And they found that the low dose worked just as well and had, go figure, less GI side effects. I can't imagine them. <laughs> go on, Paul. Right. Because I think when we, we both started, I mean, that, those were still the days where you titrated to GI intolerance. Like you just kept, you kept giving colchicine until you started having diarrhea and then you'd back off if I yeah. remember right. Like I'm, I'm a little bit more humane now. 
So a lot of the common regimens now, uh, Rahul, what do you see usually people doing if they're using colchicine? Is it the 1.2 followed by the 0.6 a couple hours later? Yes. And that is, you know, I work primarily in the inpatient setting. So right. it's usually that I'm sort of hearing about that or or seeing that is what has been used uh, in the chart. I, I also see patients get corticosteroids if they don't have a contraindication. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the, the ACR has guidelines that were updated this year by our friend, Dr. Tahina Neoji, and their guidelines say you can use steroids, NSAIDs, or colchicine, and you sort of choose the therapy based on what the patient can tolerate and uh, but any of them should work. So in this study, they were using either uh, the comparison was between NSAIDs and it was naproxen 750 milligrams. You give it as a loading dose and then you give 250 milligrams three times a day for seven days. And in the colchicine group, they were giving 0.5 milligrams three times a day for four days. And at day seven, they were looking at what their what their symptoms were and this was on like a 10 point scale at baseline both groups had around 6 out of 6 and a half out of 10 is what they rated their pain and then towards the end of the trial both had a score of around 1 and a half there was really no significant difference at day 7 in pain scores between the low doco and the naproxen group and patients in this study they were over 18 years old They had a clinical diagnosis of either an initial gout flare or a recurrent gout flare, and they excluded patients with advanced chronic kidney disease, um, patients who had recent GI bleed because of the NSAIDs, patients on anticoagulation, or if they had like a known allergy or intolerance to either drug. And the results of this, uh, we're calling this a negative trial, right, Rahul? And can you explain, because to me, this seems in some ways positive that both low Low doco and naproxen both had significant reductions <laughs> in the patient's pain by seven days, but there was no big difference between the groups. Yeah. And and to some extent, this is a little bit of a semantic distinction mm-hmm. um, because you're right. In both groups, uh, patients experienced pain relief compared with day zero. Um, the only thing that I push people to do with regard to designating positive versus negative is to just make sure that we understand how the study was set up and what the objective and the hypothesis was. Um, in this study, they powered it as a superiority trial, but they didn't really have a hypothesis about whether colchicine or naproxen would be better. So they you know, powered the study to find a difference of a of a specified size between the two groups. And because this study did not demonstrate a difference between the two regimens, you know, that's my basis for describing this as a negative or a null study. Now, if this was designed as a non-inferiority trial to show um, that, you know, one treatment was not inferior to another one, then this absence of a difference we would call a positive study. So it all depends on how the study is set up and what the hypothesis was. And and they actually, they took it out to four weeks. And again, there was, there was no real difference. You know, one thing that struck me about this, Paul, only at, at day seven, only about two thirds of the patients were pain-free. Um, you know, a lot of patients still had pain. And at four weeks, only 75% of the patients were pain-free, which means like a lot of people had lingering symptoms of gout. Yeah, I, I think that's, I feel like I see that in clinical practice too. I'm not sure what your experience is. I think we all we often think of acute as in primarily in terms of its acute flares and sort of lasting a couple of days and it's going to get better and don't worry. You just pick the right treatment, it goes all the way better. But I do see patients that it just it lingers and lingers and lingers and they have pain even between sort of the intercritical, like acute flares. It just kind of 
like I, the pain is never fully resolved. I'm not sure if that's been your experience. It, or not. This was almost like a sixth sense moment for me where I'm like, no, wait, everyone always gets better. Wait, do they? And then I'm like thinking back to all these patients, <laughs> like, wait a minute. No, they, they were still kind of complaining. And I was just like, oh, maybe it's arthritis or something. So uh, yeah, I, I guess maybe that is. And I, I just wasn't recognizing it. Um, Michael, did, anything that struck you about this? It makes me wonder if in the United States, uh, whether the patients would take colchicine for longer than four days, because I've seen a lot of times in outpatient practice where we, we give patients several days of colchicine, oftentimes more than four. And we say, you know, take it until you're until you feel enough relief that you feel like you can stop taking it. And we might not know exactly how many days they they take it. for. Yeah. And the guidelines say, uh, and this is just for practice, if you're if you're treating an acute gout flare. Um, just some neat things that I came across in the guidelines that maybe are slightly different. Um, so one thing that's slightly different is that the guidelines now say you can, it, they gave a conditional recommendation to start urate lowering therapy during an acute flare. And it was, it's case by case. And I think um, that's something that was different than what I was taught, at least when I was being trained many years ago now. And uh, so you can now, you have the option to start it, but you need to overlap some sort of an anti-inflammatory therapy. So either steroids, NSAIDs, or colchicine, you need to overlap them for at least three to six months. And you want to make sure that the patient's urate level is less than six, uric acid level is less than six before you stop those. So that was That's a long time. That's a long it time is a long to overlap. Time. Yeah. But that, and that was surprising to me. Um, but that is consistent with what Dr. Neoji told us. I just didn't, the, the, what the big change for me is the fact that you need to, you can now start during a flare, which is something. Mm-hmm. And they say just, you have a captive audience and they're motivated to, you're like, wait, you have something that can make this not happen again. I'm motivated to take it right now. Cause I'm in pain. So I'll, maybe I'll do it. I don't know. Have you done that yet, Paul? Yeah. Yeah. It's I, I more and more commonly, I, the rheumatology colleagues have encouraged us to do so. So now I'm, I'm trying to be a little bit more aggressive, especially if someone's having recurrent flares. Now I'll, I'll yeah. just pull the trigger when I'm seeing them in the office for that recurrent yeah. flare. And, and usually um, the, the dose, the dose of colchicine, I, I think it can vary like how much you give, but you could continue that low dose. Like in the US, it seems like we just have the 0.6 milligram dose is what I see. And you can t- yeah. continue that like once or twice a day. And it would vary. It can vary based on renal function. Um, so I, for me, I think one of the ways this might, this study might be practice changing is, uh, is the fact that I like giving a loading dose of naproxen is something I hadn't saw. I thought that was kind of neat. And then dosing it three times a day instead of the normal, just like, usually I'm giving patients like twice a day, 500 milligrams, but maybe I would, I would switch the dose and spread it out, um, the way they did in this trial. Rahul, any any major sources of bias or any uh, any major things you think the audience needs to look at here? Yeah, I mean, in some sense, the fact that there was no difference between naproxen and colchicine in this study is kind of a useful thing because it supports that, as you were saying, Matt, both groups um, had a decline in their pain uh, rating from baseline to day seven. So that suggests that both of these could be, you know, uh, potential treatment options for gout. The, the way that I would make this uh, decision in practice is basically patient factors and looking at the adverse events. And as you might expect, patients in the colchicine group had uh, more diarrhea, and they also had more headache, which the authors hypothesize might be because naproxen maybe is treating headache that just, you know, we all experience because life is hard. <laughs> um, 
But when I think about sources of bias in this study, um, one thing that was missing uh, that I think was uh, an omission that makes it a little bit hard to evaluate is the, the authors didn't report um, the time from symptom onset to randomization and treatment. Um, in the text, they say that two-thirds of patients started uh, treatment after symptoms had been ongoing for 24 hours. So that's probably pretty comparable to real-world practice. Yeah. But it does make me wonder if, you know, starting, you know, beyond 24 hours might have attenuated any difference that might exist if the treatments were started uh, earlier. Yeah. So that's something that we don't know here. Yeah, because um, the, the guidelines also mentioned this, like, pill in pocket uh concept where if someone had colchicine, the first signs of a flare, they don't need to wait to see a doc. They can just start to take it. Yeah. And then the other thing that uh, I think could bias towards the null is I would have liked to see the breakdown for how gout was diagnosed in each group. Uh, the authors note that um, to be uh, to be considered to have gout in this study, patients could be diagnosed either by joint tap, by uric acid levels, by um, uh, imaging, or by clinical criteria. So that's a relatively permissive uh, definition of gout, and it probably included some misclassification of patients who had sure. other acute arthropathies. And so I would expect that to, um, you know, for anything that's inflammatory, I would expect that to be um, addressed by both, but that that's another source of potential bias towards the null. So I don't think this article, you know, as many hotcakes as I'd give it, I'd probably give it something like a three and a half to follow Michael's lead, because I did think it would be it would inform my practice in a way, uh, the way that I think about prescribing either NSAIDs or a colchicine for an acute flare. Th these are doses that I wasn't typically using, so I, I might start to to use this dosing. Um, and it also uh, made me go back and look at the gout guidelines. But for the reasons you said, Raul, you know, I don't I don't necessarily think this was like. It, you know, it was a negative. It, in it was a negative trial. It, nothing, none of it was that surprising. The fact that both these drugs work for acute gout flare. So that's why I wouldn't give it a, a higher number. So with that, any any closing comments, Michael, Paul, before we we get into the outro here, I think that we've we've done heroes' work tonight. I think you know, Coltacine, the new drug of the future, based on this episode. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, new kid in town. <laughs> 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 gonna make some changes. <laughs> this has been another episode of the Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy! Great. I wasn't sure who's was gonna do it, but that was a <laughs> pleasant non-surprise. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com, and while you're there, sign up for our mailing list to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. And we're committed to providing you with high-value, practice-changing knowledge. And to do that, we want your feedback, so please send us an email to thecurbsiders at gmail.com. And if you're feeling really generous, you can rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. It really does make us feel good about ourselves, and it helps other people find the show. I'd like to give a special thanks to Michael Sternberg for joining us on this episode, and of course, the great Dr. Rahul Ganatra, uh, who is our in-house statistician. I don't know, what, what are we calling? What's his official title, Paul? I, that's why I stumbled at the beginning. I could not remember if we even had one. Certainly, he deserves one. So maybe we back <laughs> me a project for, before the next episode. I feel need like, to work on that. I feel like Deb Gorth gave him some like sick nickname that that I'm now forgetting. But uh, we'll 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 put something in there. <laughs> we'll circle back. Yeah, like we can fix stats, this post. Stats guru. Yes, exactly. Ugh. Thanks. Thanks to our social media team, Beth Garbs Garbatelli on Twitter, Maddie Mad Dog Morgan on Instagram, Tima Karganov does our website, Chris the Chew Man Chew is on Facebook. A reminder to the audience that 
This episode and most of our episodes are available for free CME for all healthcare professionals through VCU Health Continuing Education at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. I've been Dr. Michael Sternberg. I've been Dr. Rahul Ganatra. And we would be remiss if we did not thank the amazing Stuart Brigham, amazing-ish, Stuart Brigham (laughs) for composing the theme music that you're doubtless hearing behind us. Uh, We should also thank the truly amazing Perry Morgan from Not Italy for editing our audio. And as always, I remain Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. Thank you and goodbye. Goodbye.